0: But from a banker's perspective, when you see the developer identifying that risk, quantifying the risk and then attaching a budget within the funding structure to further reduce that risk, it's gold.
1: You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello and welcome to the Property Developer Podcast. It's wonderful to have you with me. How are you doing? Are your projects moving along the way you would like? I hope so. I've got a great show for you today as we talk finance. But before we get to that, here's a quick update on my two projects. The 20 townhouse development is rapidly approaching completion. The internal driveway has now been done and it's looking great you can check out a short video I produced to update the buyers on the Property Developer Podcast website page for this episode. The driveway looks terrific, and it pretty much means the rubber boots can go back in the cupboard for a while. The back 10 townhouses are close to practical completion, with the final internal fixing being done. And I'm working on getting the titles for those 10 before the front 10 are complete, with a view to settling them a little bit earlier. The landscaper is due to start next week which will be great, it will be good to see some greenery on the site and all start to soften up and look fantastic. The front townhouses are having their internal fit out done and the front brick fences for those properties are being erected as we speak. With my new project, we heard back from Council last month with a request for further information. They identified some minor issues with our proposal, mainly around the size of visitor car parks and waste collection. So, we've made some minor tweaks to our design to accommodate Council's concerns. At this stage, they have not raised any concerns about our proposed density and design. One of the more interesting issues we faced was that Council referred our application to the local fire authorities, who asked that we provide a 10-metre turning circle at the end of the driveway, which is around 60 metres long, to allow their trucks to turn around should they have to attend an emergency at the site. Fortunately it turns out that the fire service is not a referral authority, which means what they ask for is not enforceable. So while we don't have to implement their points, we are going to accommodate a few of their requests, including providing a number of fire hydrants along the driveway to provide water within a certain distance from each townhouse. So we want to show that we are prepared to work with council to achieve a result. And this was a good example of having good people on your team who can challenge council on these kinds of demands and determine whether council can actually ask you to make certain changes. Hopefully council is satisfied with our response and will support a move to the advertising stage in the next few weeks. Okay, on with the show. Today I speak with Matthew Royal from Development Finance Partners, a firm that works with developers to get their project funding sorted out. As you know, finance is a key plank of any project, and getting it right is crucial to the viability and longevity of your business. We cover a fair bit of ground in this discussion, including how you can set yourself up to have a pipeline of projects to enable your business to grow, how banks assess risk, and how you can take advantage of the opportunities that present themselves in any market. I started off by asking Matthew what food would he eat until he was sick?
0: Uh, every, anything from my favourite restaurant up here uh, in Brisbane called Echo uh, will be fine. Anything there, pretty much start with one end of the menu and go to the other, and it's all good. <laughs> so, but if you had to know anything specifically, um, maybe mango sorbet
2: is fine. Oh, mango sorbet—that's a, a very Queensland dish.
0: Yeah, they have a couple of cocktails with mango sorbet in there too, which is uh, which is which goes down a treat.
2: Well, I have to say, mango daiquiris have always been popular in our household at Chris- on Christmas Day. Oh, <laughs> uh, very good. Well, that's um, that, that's that's the
0: hardest-hitting question you've got, isn't it? Yeah, that's, the
2: rest are easy from here on in. E-
0: excellent. <laughs>
2: now, <laughs> so tell
0: it's, little... it's, it's, it's got to be more interesting than finance. Um, <laughs> fi- look, I love finance, but not everyone finds it uh, as entertaining. So, we'll
2: see what we could do. Oh, look, I'm sure with a few mango daiquiris, finance could become interesting for a lot of people. <laughs> true. Now, tell us a little bit about development finance partners, or DFP, and and how they help developers.
0: Yeah, look, essentially the best way I could describe DFP is um, as a consultant similar to many other consultants um, within a team that's required to um, bring a project to being, Um our tagline is um, uh, is um, bringing vision into reality, uh, which is um, probably a good descriptor of what we do, uh, in that um, we assist with developers to engineer and optimize the financing of developments uh, from beginning to end. So we work in conjunction with the developer and uh, development managers and project managers uh, marketing agents, um, planning consultants to assist in the financing of the entirety of the cash flow required to complete a project. And then also advise them on a group position, how to best utilise the equity that's available within the group to finance things like, for example, the design and approval and marketing budget, along with a land settlement, along with the construction finance and then beyond into residual stock. Um, so, yeah, so very much we act as a as a financial engineer, as an advisor um, on individual projects, but also in the broader context of uh, what other um, assets and um, interests that the developer has that we can raise um, debt and equity against uh, efficiently.
2: And that's a service that you provide across Australia, isn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah, we operate in every state. Uh, We've got offices in Brisbane and Sydney. Um, we're in Melbourne regularly, um, but we're transacting and advising in, uh, actively in South Australia, in Western Australia, and from time to time, uh, Northern Territory and Tasmania, um, and also the AC2 um, at the moment as well. So, so yeah, there's no, no issues from a geographical perspective.
2: Okay, and and how did you get into finance or over into the development finance side of things?
0: Yeah, look, I guess uh, when you look back at a career, it's interesting how you end up being where you are. I started off um, in health science, and as a um, graduate, worked in that industry for some years, and then slowly gravitated towards doing more of my own property investing, and and um, was lucky enough to get an introduction to an advisory firm in early 20s um, and in that firm i learned the basics of everything from project marketing through to site acquisition, uh, retail finance, uh, the basis of some development finance um, and then progressively um, worked um, in my own advisory uh, role in a similar role for clients and progressively did my own property development. Um, and then ultimately um, ended up in senior banking roles um, with high-net-worth families, um, helping facilitate debt and equity across their investments, um, and then across to uh, more institutional um, debt and equity providers. And then, uh, finally, they worked in a senior bank role um, as an Associate Director of Property Finance with Bankwest, um, which kind of rounded out from a... Uh, well-rounded perspective from both the developer's perspective and marketing agent's perspective, Um, uh, financing and understanding off-the-plan sales and the key issues that affect mums and dads as property investors and also um, owner-occupiers. I work both on the equity side, um, doing structured equity, JVs and those types of things, as well as um, working in a senior bank for a property finance unit. So I've sort of have been fortunate enough um, to having sat with many hats on, um, so sort in of an advisory role, um, having also worked in the upward part of the credit cycle as well as the downward part. Um, so, being able to bring all of that experience to clients in, a, in the everyday role that it, that I um, perform in the business today um, is quite enjoyable with respect to giving that advice based upon all of that experience. So, um, yeah, it definitely enables clients to achieve things that they never would have considered possible uh, for themselves with respect to growth, um, especially growth strategies within a property development business. Um, yeah, well, and to, do things in, to do things also in a way that, that manage and risk um, as much as possible as well
2: yeah it certainly sounds like you've got a very experienced background for working with developers the roles that you've been in
0: yeah yeah i I really think it is um having um different
2: experience
0: from different perspectives and being able to see from all angles um a much more rounded approach um, it definitely um it definitely helps in the in the strategies and in the advice that we provide, um, and clients certainly appreciate that. and And I think you've either got time in the game um, or you haven't. Um, one of the things that I've learned, in, in certainly when we're interviewing and qualifying new capital partners in the business, is do they actually have the experience of working in property finance? Recently, are they transacting, doing property deals, doing structured finance deals now? And and that's a big determining factor. Um, so I, you either have the specialised experience and knowledge um, and are transacting or you don't. And ultimately, that comes down to how many years in the game have you had um, and either you've got the experience or you haven't. That's really what it comes down to. Because ultimately, what all that means is your ability to be fast and flexible with respect to being able to provide advice and and provide financing solutions on those two terms, being fast and flexible, is really what bears that out. And and ultimately, that's, that's what makes the difference um, in our business.
2: Yeah, look, definitely experience counts for a lot, particularly in developing. You really need those experienced heads advising you along the way so that you can tiptoe through the minefield, as it were. And- Find that straightest line to success.
0: Absolutely, and you know also you know we, in terms of the team that's here, um, the minimum banking experience in our team is ten years on average. It's probably pushing closer to twenty um, years in property finance in banking, um, right across our group. And when you're all working as a team and you're all working up strategies to advise clients working for and on behalf of the client's interests. Um, When you have the freedom to be able to match risk for return uh, with any one of 200-odd different capital partners that all have a different function and a different role to play at different phases um, in the process of a developer building their portfolio and progressively growing with respect to the project sizes and complexity, um... All of that combined experience and options really, um, is extremely valuable. And that's just how we get done what we get done, essentially.
2: Mm. Um, so, yeah, that sounds like a bit of a asylum for recovering bankers. <laughs>
0: well, frustrated bankers. Um, <laughs> I think it's, uh, it's challenging, you know, when you've been in a bank and, uh, or you've come from an equities, um, Uh, hedge fund or, uh, mes fund or whatever it is, um, where you only have one product, um, to offer and you're operating in a very thin segment. Um, so you might only be able to do transactions between 2 million and 15 million and you can only operate in Southeast Queensland and you have one credit approval authority who can either say yes or no to any transaction that you put up. It's quite limiting. Um, And that's, you know, depending upon the appetite of the bank and and, uh, and obviously um, the level of confidence and experience that uh, your credit manager has um, as well. And that comes down to, mostly that comes down to how successful is that banker in the bank? Um, Do they hold hand within the bank because they're transacting very profitably? Um, their risk profile in their book is low, and generally they have the confidence of their credit manager. That's really what determines whether or not the experience you have with your bank, XYZ Bank, is either good or bad. Um, and the same customer could have an entirely different experience with the same bank, except they just happen to be with another banker. They may not necessarily have the track record with the credit manager and the confidence Um, and also the financial results um, which ultimately give that other banker the influence within the bank Uh, and these things have you know enormous uh, enormous uh, impact Um, and generally the more experienced bankers who understand different ways means of being able to structure things can get more transactions done because they simply have a a much better knowledge and experience as to how to approach different things. So,
2: yeah, well I, yeah. I I just read an article that you wrote on your website about things your banker will never tell you, which was which was really interesting. I think in there you said with rare exceptions your banker is authorized to approve virtually nothing and say no to virtually everything. Yeah, that is
0: a problem for a banker. Certainly in the um, we're becoming more robotic um, As each year goes on with respect to standardised risk-grading models, um, there's – and that's both in terms of new-to-bank transactions, existing clients, but also in the review of various facilities that your accounts are being constantly measured against, which have nothing to do with the relationship that you have with that banker or that that banker has with their credit manager. It is a process that's quite um, dehumanised and – It leaves um, the banker virtually as a postbox um, for and on behalf of the bank who's got certain limitations. Um, Some bankers much more limitations than others, but generally that is the unfortunate situation, is that there's no accountability for a banker who is not enthusiastically supporting property finance, um, even if the bank does have appetite. There is no accountability from the banks or from the banker's perspective who is inexperienced or lazy or, um, maybe has reached their budget and is not greatly incentivized to do substantially more deals for them just to simply pass on a transaction or have not worked it up hard enough in order for both the customer and the bank to make a profit. That, that's a, that's certainly a big challenge. Um, I think that the banks have with respect to their, their KPIs and how they set up performance budgets. and um, They're certainly uh, measured in terms of risk. Um, the level of risk and reporting on various portfolios now is, is quite extreme. Um, there's certainly no opportunity for bankers or limited opportunity these days for bankers to be able to um, extend out facilities to um, be able to um, create um, situations where um, there is inherently credit risk that is temporary that could be addressed. Um, now things are much more visible. So the, the role of the individual banker is becoming um, uh, diminished um, over time. But certainly the point that I was making with respect to, um, there's no accountability for that banker to have to pass up on a transaction that is ultimately a viable transaction and is that can be well structured and is ultimately a doable deal, um, and that's that's a huge that's a huge problem for a bank and and for the industry and yeah but um, but yeah I don't necessarily have a um, a solution to that um, other than that perhaps if there is a record of transactions that bankers do decline. Um, that there should be a, perhaps more of a process of understanding why they did decline it. But unfortunately, that's not the culture of um, any of the, any of the banks here in Australia.
2: Now, you mentioned that you were involved in a property development yourself. What sort of project was that?
0: Um, so predominantly smaller projects. Um, so, um, some uh, duplexes, um, some, uh, smaller townhouse development. Um, some smaller land subdivisions, so predominantly just your smaller infill um, median density um, style projects So, their um, um, yeah you know, it, it hasn't been a um, uh, a process that we've undertaken as a business for some time um but certainly that that experience was valuable um, it's something that i'm probably um keen to do more of as we're expanding the business um, into an equity fund. Um, We've recently launched an AFSL, which um, is now in the market, um, seeking to raise additional capital. Um, We're definitely looking to take more of an active interest uh, in property development through partnering with our clients, um, through being a financing partner directly into those projects and providing equity. Uh, I think that'll be the direction of the business that will take on more um, we've probably been quite active uh, in the last couple of years with respect to partnering with some of our development managers um, that we partner with in the business to help deliver projects as part of providing the overall financing package as well. And that capability is definitely um, something we can to extend on a little bit more uh, into the next um, the next 12 months.
2: All right. Well. It's early 2017 when we're recording this. How do you see the current lending landscape at the moment?
0: Um, I see
2: um,
0: there's probably a market of haves and have-nots. Um, your um substantially experienced developers that have got a good pipeline of projects, uh, that have got a track record of delivering upon risk, um, are definitely the developers that are uh, still being um, relatively supported by their existing banks um, on a project-by-project basis. So with respect to LVRs, we're still seeing those clients uh, still achieving 75 to 80% of TDC, um, but still being measured with respect to the total amount of projects that they're being able to take on at any one particular time. Um, there's substantial amounts of additional capital available to those clients, um, through med providers, through high net worth family offices um and other um uh, non bank lenders to be able to help fill the gap that the banks um are not providing those customers um there's certainly um a inflow of capital coming in from uh, or into mortgage trusts um and non bank lenders because the cash rate is um is now at one and a half percent and probably not forecast to be moving any anytime soon just putting a lot of pressure on self-funded retirees and um, and certainly superannuation funds to be getting um, more involved in providing construction finance in various forms because the returns that are available for ultimately quite viable projects in, in areas where the fundamentals are still sound. So we are seeing an increased amount of appetite in the non-bank space to be able to help fill the gap. that. Being left behind um, by the existing banks, the challenge that um, that we're seeing is that there's um, not enough quality risk um, in the market at the moment to be able to fulfill the amount of capital that's actually in the market and that's being provided by those um, by those non bank lenders so um, so developers that do have a good quality pipeline that um, do have a, a desire to deliver upon those pipelines. It's really then just a matter of matching both the existing capital that they have available from their banks um, with then the capital that's also available from the non-banks and then matching that to their pipeline. Ultimately, that means that the overall cost of the capital has gone up um, compared to what it was 12 months ago. But in terms of pipelines that need to be delivered upon and the equity that's inherently sitting within those projects, not doing anything for them and having holding costs, it's important for those developers to have alternative funding lines so that they can deliver their projects and, uh, and keep progressing, um, especially as we're going to go into this counter-cyclical environment at the moment where the ability to acquire sites um, at substantially discounted prices to where they were 12 or 18 months ago is where there's an opportunity for developers to be able to keep replenishing their pipeline of projects at market at rates which are ultimately viable. But if they don't have the liquidity to be able to do it now, they won't have the ability to keep progressing with a pipeline so that they can be completing projects they're completing and then have projects to be able to continue on with essentially. Which is important because those projects that they can acquire now will be able to be brought to market at a point where there's just been stock levels that in some markets are a little bit oversaturated will have been soaked and those projects that they can bring to market in back end of 19 and 20 um, will be largely under supplied, especially in the markets where this population growth um, continuing to march on. Because what's... The fundamentals of the amount of debt that has supplied and made made possible the, the the volumes of projects that are completing now, the debt that's fueled and made that possible is just simply not there at the moment. We're, see, we're obviously sitting building building starts approval levels coming off substantially at the moment in most markets, especially those markets that have been the most active. Which simply means that the supply levels. Um, in another 18 months to two years um, is going to be uh, substantially different to what it is today. So, so yeah, so that's that's where I see the opportunity uh, for property developers that can acquire well in the market at the moment, um, that are capital constrained by their existing banks, is that they do need to be able to have the equity that's within their group at the moment unlocked and the ability to have other funding lines and other funding relationships including the relationships that they have currently. Um, the developers that can do that will definitely be well positioned at the point where the gap between supply and demand for completed stock in the market will start widening out again. And ultimately at that point, the banks will start coming back into the market as well. So so yeah, so it's, it certainly um, presents challenges the current credit cycle, but there's no doubt there's opportunity um, for developers to get a competitive edge um, to be able to simply access finance where, where other competitors just won't be able to.
2: And you mentioned in the quality risk, could you just elaborate on that a little bit in terms of how you would define or how lenders would would look at quality risk? What, what's, what do they consider quality risk to be?
0: Um, quality risk is... Um, predominantly about the ability and the experience of the um, borrowing group and the director's um, track record of delivering projects. Um, there's not a speculative um, land market at the moment, uh, and they probably not likely to be for some time. So the developers that are capable of um, taking on risk in the form of debt and then delivering upon projects from acquisition through to design and approvals through into marketing. And then who have got an ability to then complete on the construction phase successfully on time on budget, sell down the projects and then repay capital and obviously make profits. They're the, they're the developers that have got a track record of doing that successfully is really what the quality risk is about. They're the developers that are going to be benchmarking profitability and understanding approval and zoning risk and sales and marketing risk. They're the developers that have got funding uh, funding relationships as well as sales and marketing relationships and who genuinely understand um, the process of highest and best use of a site um, and positioning stock well in the market and then obviously um, in- investing... In the process of mitigating risk, to go through the process, um, and they're the they're the developers that are um, that are keenly um, sought after, not only by the banks but also the non-banks and various forms of equity and mezzanine finance and um, corporate debt as well. So that's that's definitely the that's definitely where we're seeing the strongest appetite for risk from our perspective at the moment.
2: Okay, and are you seeing any other changes to lending requirements, say pre-sale conditions, asking for higher deposits for qualified sales?
0: Yeah, look, I think um, certainly lending standards have um, increased around qualifying sales and pre-sales. Um, we're seeing circa to 110% of debt cover now on qualifying sales being the norm in most markets. For land subdivisions, uh, we're seeing less than that. Most um, parts of um, the eastern seaboard in major metro locations, the fundamentals of the land subdivision market are quite strong. So we are seeing a reduced uh, pre-sale hurdle where the sales rates in those areas are strong, which is obviously what underpins Best um, success of most developments, but certainly subdivisions. So that would be the exception to the rule, um, to 100 to 110%. Uh, in some of those, in some instances, we have some second-tier banks that are financing up to 65% of the on-completion value of um, best of our client subdivisions at 65%, and that's um, with no pre-sales uh, at you know, reasonably substantial projects. Uh, And ultimately, that comes down to the ability of the developer um, to sell stock in a market where sales rates are strong to markets that are a little bit more deteriorated around um, supply and demand levels, perhaps a more higher-density market. You might be looking at 120% um, north even. Uh, And obviously, the quality of those sales um, is being more stringently looked at um, the, the address of the borrower, the address of the purchases, um, whether or not the corporate guarantees are also being um, supplemented by the personal guarantees of the directors. Multiple purchases, um, obviously, FERB sales have become uh, increasingly um, disqualified in terms of a qualifying sale. Mm. Uh, so that's that. Um, And also, even to the extent that what's the total cost of the sale that's attached to the pre-sale contract, as you start progressing above 6% as a total budget for advertising and marketing and sales commissions, then there is a view that the settlement risk on those sales starts escalating. And to what extent um, does the developer have a direct relationship with those purchases? So what are the sales channels that are being used? and how well does the developer understand how that purchaser has been qualified in terms of their ability to settle um, and that's um so all of those things are being looked at um not only by the bank but also by the valuers um and uh, and they're being asked to more and more to make assessments um as to the quality of the sales being the valuers being asked to make those assessments
2: yeah, so, yeah, the impact, Sorry, the impact on the ground for developers there is just the time it's taking to get all that stuff sorted out.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Look, the process of um of obtaining construction finance from a valuation perspective um is is substantial now. Um the timeframes and the cost required to to do that should not be underestimated, and the level of preparation required to to get a full construction valuation done is uh is often underestimated. Um Especially now, with respect to the certification of the pre-sales contracts and the level of um, certification that the valuers now need, even from the from the developers' solicitors, with respect to things like certifying um, rebates, um, incentives, and all of those things, which um, in the more deteriorated market are becoming an increasingly higher level of credit risk. Uh, and by that, I mean, if there's rental guarantees or if there's stamp duty rebates or um, various other forms of rebates the the real uh, market value of the underlying contract price um, after those rebates is is being looked at um, pretty heavily. And certainly in Brisbane at the moment, um, the cost of sales is on many projects is starting to push north of eight, nine, ten, eleven percent. Um, with by the time you add up all the incentives and um and sales commissions that are um and marketing and advertising that's been spent. And generally the the higher the cost of the sales, the higher the settlement risk. Um it's pretty much um uh how you would how you would most easily look at um the quality of the sale.
2: Mm. And so given all that, what mis- what mistakes do you see developers getting themselves into?
0: Um, I think the mistake that a lot of developers will make will be more around um, attempting to take on projects which they simply don't have the experience um, or the equity to take on, uh, and they underestimate um, the level of risk and experience that's required to um, deliver on a project both from the financier's perspective, um, but also the actual process of positioning your product in a market and designing a product in a market which is going to be positioned well, that's going to be saleable, that's going to be ultimately viable. And if the developer doesn't have that experience of setting up a development program and being disciplined with respect to hitting milestones that need to be hit over a period of time, then there is a million ways that an inexperienced developer on a project that's that either they're completely inexperienced or that they're taking on projects that are substantially larger or in markets that they haven't operated in before. And that obviously can be mitigated by taking on the right advice and um, both in terms of the marketing, the design, um, the financing, the process of mitigating valuation risk and really Operating in a you know quite a disciplined um, manner, where you're taking on the proper advice and you're partnering with the consultants that have got the specific experience, including the builder, um, to successfully deliver and on a project. And that begins at the very beginning of the acquisition, and making sure that when you're going through the acquisition process that you've you're working on the highest and best use of the site, and you've taken on a project control group that. Actually, have the experience uh, to assist um, in delivering upon everything, and um, and that's a, and certainly that that's a challenge. I think um, potentially there is an increasingly heightened level of risk on delivery, as far as the financial viability of, of builders are concerned. Um, I think certainly in in markets, certainly Brisbane, where the escalation of construction costs has been running at. 1% to 1.5% for the past 12 months. Uh, we're seeing increasing pressure on viability of projects and, and, the, and the financial viability of, of several builders. There's been a couple of high-profile cases of, of some substantial builders up here um, who have uh, unfortunately gone broke um, and left both the bank and the developers um, high and dry. And that's pretty much your worst-case scenario in construction finance. Ultimately, everyone's after the sales and the marketing, uh, and all the approvals and all the financing is. Uh, ultimately, the baton is handed um, to the builder um, to complete on the project uh, within, obviously, the pro- within a within a budget of both time and money. And where a project gets near complete um, or halfway through a job, and uh, and is running into cash flow problems. Um, there's all sorts of challenges that present from there and it's in many cases it's hard for a project um to recover from that. So often that means that um the cheapest quote is is um not necessarily the best quote. Um, and in many respects if you've um partnered with the with the best builders, especially in the design and the approval process, um the the risk is heavily mitigated. And that will be supported by financiers in terms of the cost and the amount of debt that you can achieve, especially if you're more inexperienced. Um, In many ways, if you're looking to take on a bigger project and the standing and the reputation of the builder is at a very high level um, with respect to the bank, um, then many of the risks around the developer's inexperience or um lack of experience with a project that's of a bigger size starts being mitigated pretty quickly in the mind of the banker um
2: yeah yeah that's a good point i think if you are a developer and you're looking to jump up to the next level or take on a bigger project it's probably wise to consider paying a uh an inexperienced premium i guess you might call it to the builder to mitigate that risk for you
0: absolutely yeah and i think that i think that certainly extends to the design and construct contracts, I think the more that you can uh, work with the builder, uh, pay a little bit of a margin for the design uh, piece of a design and construct uh, will definitely mean that the padding for risk um, that an an experienced builder would ordinarily have to do because they haven't infinitely had their own consultant team that they trust. Um, Those consultant teams understand the buildability and the building processes of the developer um, where there is then also a limitation of variation risk within the head contract. Um, those um, uh, those processes, um, in terms of the overall delivery risk, can, can definitely um, serve um, the developer well um, in many respects. I think in markets, where there is an increase in construction cycle, having the builder um, being able to forward contract their bill of quantities um, at a higher than normal percentage, I think is uh, is a very sound strategy as well. Um, all of those things that you can do to start limiting and mitigating risk um, or start working um, in the developers' favour and start making the bankers feel, and the quantity surveyors and the valuers, start feeling much more comfortable, which all, all of that comes down to is that um, there is less padding for risk because everything's more certain. And... Um, yeah and that's obviously one of the ways in which we advise clients and and um and that that can yeah it can make quite a big difference
2: right. well leading on from that, how do you see the good operators going from project to project through all phases of a cycle?
0: yeah look I think um understanding um the group cash flow um of a of a developer is particularly important from a group perspective. So where you're able to match projects that are in a design and approval phase with a settlement phase, but also in consultation with that, there's projects that are in construction that are completing and have got a percentage of pre-sales that are, um, you can quantify in terms of the settlement risk. You can identify the amount of capital and equity that's coming back into a group as well as the profits. And you can match that up with where, realistically, is the credit cycle and the, and the property cycle? And do I have a pipeline that's well-balanced between projects that are in the acquisition phase and the land settlement phase and the land bank phase? And is that supported from a cash flow from the group because we have other projects that are completing that are largely pre-sold? And we can start literally just making sure that the developers' cash flow across their group is robust and we can match up layers of gearing, debt, and equity across the group on that basis. So that's particularly um, a particularly good way to mitigate for sharp corrections in markets. Um, obviously, you're looking at um, the fundamentals of looking at, realistically, what are the levels of supply coming into a market on a project, um, what level of market risk is in every market, And therefore, how do I match up my pre-sales strategy based upon the level of market risk? So all of that simply means if, if you can see that there's a heightened level of risk, then you simply invest more resources into managing that risk. So if we, if we saw us, a property developer, um, that was commencing a project in a market where the, where there was probably ideally more supply, than what there would ordinarily be in a market of equilibrium. It simply means that that developer, regardless of what the bank requires, should be investing more heavily in, sort of in the marketing and advertising and the sales budget because the market risk is the highest risk and it's always the highest risk in any project. If you see that you have timed a market particularly well and there is a limited amount of supply, and in fact, you'll be hitting the market and bringing stock to market where there's limited competition in a rising market. Well, that obviously means that there's less market risk, so it's entirely appropriate to deal with a financing strategy that limits the requirement for pre-sales in those circumstances. So it's always matching for matching risk um, with respect to how that you build a budget of capital to mitigate that risk. So what money can I spend in my group to manage risk and ensure profitability um, in a group position? Uh, And one of the things that I'm recommending for both our underwriters as well as developers, in markets and in most markets, might say that there is slightly more supply than there is demand. A great strategy at the moment is within the funding table, within the bank's funding table, even if you have achieved the pre-sale hurdle, identify within the overall funding structure that there is an additional budget being made available to sell the balance of the stock during the course of the construction phase. It provides enormous amount of comfort that even if there is settlement risk on the existing pre-sales, that there is a budget there. For those sales to be replaced and for additional level of sales to be reached so that at the completion of the project based upon that line item within the developer's cash flow that you can bank upon a substantial amount of capital, debt reduction and equity coming back to the developer. And it's not, and it doesn't necessarily require a lot of money. You might, it might only be a budget required of 150 grand or $100,000 in order to on the basis that you've got to spend 2% on the unconditional sales contract for the project marketer to sell out the rest of the stock. And that's got to be on the basis of, well, how much risk is there in the market and how much settlement risk have I got sitting in my existing sales? And that's just the decision that um, the developer can make. But from a banker's perspective, when you see the developer... Identifying that risk, quantifying the risk, and then attaching a budget within the funding structure to further reduce that risk, it's gold. It's, it speaks highly about the developer's acumen, about the developer's um, attitude towards managing the risk, not only their risk, but also the bank's risk. And it takes away a lot of questions, for example, like settlement risk, which is a big issue in many markets at the moment. So that's, uh, um, yeah, some of those, so there's some of the strategies that um, I think um, can work quite well for managing risk in cycles, which can obviously go up and down.
2: Yeah, well, speaking of settlement risk, there's been a lot of talk about apartment oversupply, particularly in the Melbourne and Brisbane markets. Are you seeing apartment get an unfolding, or is it not as bad as what was predicted
0: yeah we um, we haven't seen any smoking gun at the moment. I think there is a increasing trend towards property developers becoming property owners um at the completion of projects as um, higher than historical fallover rate um, is occurring. Um, To what extent, and it's difficult to find any hard data on that, but anecdotally from uh, the conversations that I'm having um, with um, the lawyers who are acting for the banks and for the developers, we're not seeing Armageddon scenario play out with either local sales or FERB sales. We're seeing that the settlements are taking longer um, and that the... um, Banks and the developers are restructuring debt at the completion of projects. Um, If, in fact, settlements have failed, facilities on the construction limits are being extended to allow for resales, or, in fact, residual stock facilities are being uh, increasingly made available um, by non-bank lenders in the second tier to help refinance the construction debt that's being left behind, if, in fact, there has been Um, some level of pre-sales that have failed to settle. And the upside for the market is that even if 20% of the sales in many projects um, failed to complete, the level of pre-sales that the banks required at the beginning of those projects was, in many cases, at least 80 to 100%. But if that's the case, the residual LVR, from the bank's perspective, is actually quite low. And on that basis, there is the ability to restructure the debt and extend out the term and for an orderly sell-down of residual stock and for natural absorption to, to take place. But more and more developers are accessing um, and we're advising uh, clients through residual stock facilities to um, to take that out, either on a longer-term hold basis or, um, or simply on a 12-month basis so that they can just progressively sell down stock um, into the local market um or in fact, um you know, through other sales channels so um so short answer is no, we're not seeing the Armageddon scenario play out um it'll be interesting next six to twelve months um to see what plays out as an increasing number of the higher density projects um are coming into market and are settling um but so far um yeah it's um it doesn't look as though that there's a an Armageddon scenario that, that's that's gonna play out at the moment.
2: All right, well, that's good news for all concerned, I think. So what's? do you have a funding tip or tips for developers?
0: Yeah, look, I think um, without needing to do anything exotic, I think it comes down to looking at their existing funding structure, looking at their group, looking at the assets they hold, looking at the pipeline of projects that they want to deliver or acquire, and really just efficiently managing the equity and the cash flows across the group. If that's all you do without needing to do anything exotic, it's amazing how much equity can be unlocked to enable a developer's, um, plans to be, um, to come to fruition. It simply needs, they simply need the proper advice, not from their bank because their banker provides them the default advice historically. But the banker who they're currently banking with is, is the worst person in the world to be able to be offering them advice um, with respect to how to free up equity across their group and, and be borrowing more money in the current market. They're, they're essentially, they you know, they have a conflict of interest to be able to provide that advice, but also they only operate in one part of the credit structure, which is first mortgage, senior debt, and that's really all they can see. And their incentive is to be able to lock up all of the securities and generally be able to control the growth of the, of the client property developer, um, as they see fit. Getting independent advice through a consultant like us that can, that, um, has the experience to act for and on behalf of that developer based upon saying the developer says, well, here's my, aspirations, and here's my objectives in the business for the next one, two, three, five years. It's really the job of the consultant to develop a financing structure and a strategy in order to enable that to happen. And that's not something that a client's existing bank will will ever be able to do. And that that not only includes the senior bank, but it also includes other layers of debt in additional leverage that obviously cost comes at an overall cost of the money. But it's the job of the advisor to be able to fulfill a strategy based upon the objectives of the developer, not the other way around. Unfortunately, the way that the property industry happens because of the default advice just coming from their banker, it's the other way around. The developer's objectives and what's achievable is actually coming from the advice, um, or direction of their bank. It, needs, it absolutely needs to go the other way. And um, and that's the main tip that I've got for developers. Um,
2: fantastic advice. I think it's a really good point, actually, that the banks are more interested in their own strategic objectives than, uh, than a developer.
0: Yeah, look, I, I liken it. Um, and, you know, small to medium-sized developers is no different to a large property development um, institution that has a board and the board determines um, here's the objectives of the business for the next, you know, one, three, and five years, and they go off to the market, and they say, here's what we're going to do. It's, and what happens is the board, and the board goes to the CFO, and the CFO um, is then um, given a brief, and then basically is instructed to provide a financial strategy for the group to achieve those objectives. And that's what should happen. It's not. It's definitely not the CFO going to the board and the CFO um, telling the board what are the limitations of the business over the next one two, three and five years and um, but unfortunately that uh, advice is is simply just lacking um, out in the market and that's why we're doing everything we do to obviously promote the business as much as we can because it's, it's the, the service is definitely lacking um, out there at the moment.
2: Uh, well, I yeah, do think there's a lot to be said for getting really strong, good strategic advice. So if people out there are thinking, yeah, I could do with a bit of that, where can they find out more about you or more about Development Finance Partners?
0: Yeah, um, they're welcome to um, email me, um, mroyal at dfpartners.com.au, or they can um, head to our website, uh, which has um, got some great information and case studies and all sorts of um, uh, white papers and other blogs and useful information at df. D David F43 Partners. Com. Um, or our LinkedIn web page um, Development Finance Partners um, on LinkedIn. Um, welcome to follow us there and um, contact myself from there or um, or any of our team will be able to um, manage um, inquiries and provide some
2: advice. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for sharing your insights and experience on the Property Developer Podcast. It's been really good to talk to you about finance.
0: Yeah, thanks, Justin. I appreciate the time.
2: That's okay. We'll we'll speak to you soon. Thanks again.
0: Sounds great. Cheers. Bye.
1: Okay, there you go. A pretty broad-ranging discussion about development finance. I trust you enjoyed Matthew's insights into how risk is assessed, ways you can mitigate it, and how you could set yourself up to grow over the next few years. Here's a couple of points from our conversation that really stood out for me. One, set your own goals, not the banks. This was a great point that Matthew made. Make sure you are getting advice from people who will help you achieve the goals and aspirations that you want, rather than a bank that is going to have different desired outcomes, probably far less than what you want. So talk with people who can develop a strategy about how you can get to where you want to go, without going bust. And work with you to achieve it. I always think it is better to have good people on your team with the right skills and mindset who are more experienced than you, providing you are steering everyone along to where you want to go, as they will help you to overcome obstacles and realise your dreams. Two, have you mapped out a future pipeline of projects? Have you sat down and worked out where you want to get to? How many projects do you want to do? What size? Where? and when. By putting down on paper a plan, it will help you map out how you can get there, work through cycles and demonstrate to lenders and investors that you are serious about delivery. Also, if people know what you want to achieve, they can work out what needs to be done to help you get there. 3. Consider and mitigate your risk. Matthew mentioned how lenders favourably view developers who put forward plans and proposals that thoughtfully consider risks and put in place measures to mitigate them. It's all too easy to think your project is sound, your market is rock solid, and your risk of failure is low. But complacency often leads to disaster. So spend some time articulating the risks facing your project and identify the things you can do to prevent or minimize them. Alright, there's another show almost done. Don't forget you can find all the past episodes of the show over at www.propertydeveloperpodcast.com. And you can find me on Instagram at Property Developer Podcast for all my development videos and property porn pics. Thanks for listening in. And until next time, may your development pipeline be bursting with quality projects.
0: You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your
1: developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.